going to be reading from Exodus 19, verses 1 through 9. On the, third, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported these words to the people of to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. You may be seated. If you will, just join me in prayer before we get started. Father God, I ask, Lord, on our behalf all together, that you will wipe the crust off of our hearts, Lord, just in the same way we wipe the crust from our eyes, God, in the morning to see better, God, I pray that you'll wipe away sin, you'll wipe away hardness of heart, Father, that you'll wipe away bitterness, um, Father, that you'll wipe, wipe away our rebellion and self-dependence. Father, we want to remember um, our brother and sister, Nick and Brittany, as they uh, have um, brought Myla home, Lord, and are continuing to care for her, God. Lord, we pray that you will continue to work your good grace and love and that it will be apparent and evident to them. And that you will work in ways, Father, that will bring you glory. So God, open up our eyes today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you're new with us this morning, we've been studying the book of Exodus. And we've come now to everybody's favorite text, uh, Exodus 19 and 20, which most of you know because of the Ten Commandments. And so just to kind of let you guys know where we've been, the people of Israel have come through the Red Sea unscathed. They've come through the wilderness, through battles with the Amalekites, and now we find them encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Israel's arrival at Sinai is a high point in the book of Exodus. Echoing God's promise all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, Israel's now ready to meet their God and to serve Him up on this mountain. So everything so far has been culminating up into this point when Israel is going to come face to face with their God. Their relationship with Yahweh is going to be able to reach a whole new level now that they're in what Exodus 15 calls the dwelling place of God, a sanctuary made by God's own hand. Now, some of us uh, have never read through the book of Exodus all the way through before. And so someone who's reading through the book of Exodus for the first time might half expect the narrative to end right here. 
This chapter makes a very appropriate happy ever after, right? They've made it through the wilderness. They've made it through the battles. They've made it through the struggles. And now they're standing before God. Close the book. It should be over. In fact, this is where most of the Hollywood versions end. Because the rest of that book is just a bunch of boring stuff about law. And we don't really want to uncover the the Exodus 32 really right now. Because that's a lot of nasty business that we don't want to talk about. So why not just end it here? What we find is Sinai doesn't leave us with a conclusion. Sinai doesn't resolve all the problems that are uh, being dealt with in, in humanity's sin and the separation from God. If anything, Exodus 19 and 20 gives us more problems, gives us more questions. It doesn't resolve things for us, but points us forward. Looking closely... At Exodus 19 through 20, I think we will see less about the law and more about Christ. Specifically, we'll see how the law points us to Jesus. It's never about the Ten Commandments in and of themselves. As much as we like them, as much as we want them on plaques and then memorials, it's never been about the Ten Commandments in and of themselves. It's been about what the Ten Commandments show us about Jesus. If you look closely at Exodus 19 and 20, you will see what Israel is told that they must do in order to have a relationship with God. But then if you zoom out just a little further, include the rest of the book, including uh, Exodus 32, you're going to be given a glimpse at what Israel did not do and why their relationship with God is in continued turmoil. Zoom it out even further to include the context of the whole Old Testament. You begin to see what Israel was unable to do. They're not able to obey the law. But then you go all the way to the context of the whole Bible. All the way to the context of the New Testament. You find out it's not just Israel's problem. They're not the only ones unable to do the law. But it's everybody's problem. We all are incapable of doing the things that God has asked us to do. And therefore, we need someone to not only die for our sins, but to obey the law that we cannot obey. So that he can die and become the perfect sacrifice. So seen in the context of the whole scripture. Exodus 19 and 20, borrowing from Paul's words, are meant to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Viewed from a gospel-centered perspective, Exodus 19 and 20 shows us what we could not do under the law, we can now do and now have the freedom to do in Christ. Our new and perfect mediator. And so I hope to get there fully today. I hope to make my points clear. We have an outline that we've been passing out to people. If you don't have one, get one after the service. And it might make more sense after that. Um, But let's begin in Exodus 19. It begins with an invitation to a relationship. Look at verse 3. This is God's message to his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, this is a very important little uh, uh, excursus on here, just a, a very important little tidbit of the covenant. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Relationship, which is at the center of that word covenant, 
Covenant is all about relationship. Relationship with God is what's at stake in what God promises here. First, his message expresses his passionate salvation for his people. They did not save themselves from Egypt. They were not delivered by military strategy, by organized protests, by economic embargoes, or any other tactics that human beings can come up with. It was God alone who delivered them. Listen to how he says it. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, it was God who initiated and secured salvation. And now it is God who's initiating a relationship. They have not come to God. That's really important here. When we see them coming to Sinai, they have not come to God. They have been carried by God to himself. That's an important principle to be seen. The logic is simple. Had God not worked in the way that he had, Israel would never have made it to the mountain of God. My friends, in God's words, regardless of what your soteriology is, there may be some of you here who believe that God is sovereign over all salvation. You'd call yourself a Calvinist. There are others here that don't call themselves that. Whatever your soteriology is, I think we can agree on one indisputable point that the scripture gives us. That is, it is God who saves his people. Not his people who save themselves. Both sides of the argument can argue that, right? And agree and find agreement in that. It is God who saves his people. Israel was helpless to secure a relationship with God. New Testament talks about us as being helpless. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus uses the same language as Exodus. He says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we were sitting just like the Hebrew slaves, bound, helpless to save ourselves. And God, like a mother eagle, snatches her young away from the dangers of predators. God snatched us out of sin. And had he not done that and carried us to himself, we would not have a relationship with God. My friends, this is an important point. Israel sang glory to God because of what he did for them in delivering them from Egypt. And in the end, we will be singing glory to God, not to ourselves, for our salvation. Second, consider what God offers Israel to become. Specifically, he offers them to become my treasured possession. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, each of these little titles emphasize the special, unique relationship into which God is, an invite, is inviting them into. The first term we have is my treasured possession. It emphasizes that there's something special, not in a prideful sense, like, hey, I hate everybody else. and I'm going to favor you. But in the sense of out of all the nations of the earth, God is putting his special favor on them. They are invited into a very particular relationship with God. They are his treasure. Second, they are allowed to become a kingdom of priests. Now, just to. Just to see what this emphasizes. Basically, God's saying, every single one of you are going to have access to me just like the priest would. Now, in near Eastern ancient religions, the only person allowed to have a relationship with God was a priest. That was it. If you wanted to know God, you had to have your, your white-collar, priestly, clerical uh, credentials. If you didn't have that, then you didn't have a relationship with God. 
And here's what God's saying. The whole nation is going to be a kingdom, a priest to me. In other words, the whole nation is going to come in and out of my presence. The whole nation is going to have access to me. From the smallest child to the oldest adult in Israel, every single one of them are now invited into a personal relationship with God. But then you have holy nation as well, which echoes God's promise to Abraham. He told Abraham that he would become a great nation. That would be blessed by God. And here God uses that same kind of terminology, but this time says they're not just going to be a blessed nation or a great nation. They're going to be a holy nation, a nation set aside for God. So there's our three terms. That shows the nature of the covenant, the nature of a relationship with God. It is personal, it is valuable, it is blessed. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Have a relationship like that with God, the creator of the universe. The one who spoke the Milky Way into existence, that we are given that kind of access. But the question must be asked, how is it that a holy God could offer such an intimate relationship with such sinful people? If you've been with us through our study in Exodus, you know that Exodus 15 through 18 repeat Israel's sin over and over again. That it's they're grumbling people, they're dissatisfied people, they're people who do not have a good relationship with God. How is it that a holy God... Perfect and sinless can offer such a relationship to them as is seen in verse five. I think we see that the relationship would only be established on one thing. If Israel obeys God and keeps the covenant. If Israel obeys God and keeps the covenant seems easy enough, doesn't it? Well, sure. Right. Look at what all God did in Egypt for them. Look at how he provided manna. Absolutely, they could obey a few easy commandments, right? Surely it would be easy enough. And we kind of hear that in their cockiness when they when they when Moses comes back and says, hey, God says he wants a relationship with you if you'll obey him. And here's what the people say. I think rather hastily all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. For those of us that have read Exodus. Their words could not be more ironic. Because the truth is, isn't that people can say all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The reality is, is that sinners left to themselves actually say all that the Lord has spoken, we will disobey. They thought too highly of themselves. Oh, yeah, relationship with God dependent on our works. Absolutely, we can do that. Absolutely, we can we can work our way into a good relationship with God. If that's if that's what he's offering, not a problem. Let's do it. I think they've got a lot to learn. It's probably a lot for us to learn as well. There's still some of us today that sing songs like all I have is Christ. We sing songs like in Christ alone. And yet in our daily life, we think. Because of what we do or because of who we vote for or because of our our status or because of how good of fathers and mothers that we are, that we somehow have worked our way into a good relationship with the almighty God. We sink into this kind of legalism of of you don't realize how good I actually think I am. 
If we look at Sinai from a big picture perspective, then it is clear that God never intended Sinai, along with the covenant made at Sinai, to be the permanent goal. He's taking them aside and teaching them on an object lesson. He's teaching them what is truly required to have a relationship with him. This is why Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verses 24 through 26, when he thinks of the law, he talks about it as our tutor or as our teacher. That's what the law is for. It's here to teach us lessons. It's here to teach us something about relationship with God. So in that light, if the law was meant to be our tutor or our teacher, then what exactly does the law giving at Sinai teach us? What lessons can be gained from a relationship with God based on law? I think we're given three lessons. Lesson number one, this is what Sinai says. Clean yourselves up. But you'll never be clean enough. Clean yourselves up, but it doesn't really help. I think when we look at verse 9, let's just read it. Verse 9, God tells Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. So here's what God's plan is. I'm going to come down on the mountain. I'm going to come down on the cloud. We're going to talk about why that's important here in a minute. They're going to hear his booming voice give the Ten Commandments. Now, we, we love the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments on, on the, the courthouse lawn and everything like that. My friends, when God gave the Ten Commandments, it was a booming voice. It was terrifying. So he's going to come down. He's going to boom. Thou shalt not kill. Boom. And all of the God's people are going to be trembling underneath it. He's going to come down. And the whole purpose for that is that when God, when Moses gives them the rest of the law, they're going to actually believe that it was God who gave it to them, not just Moses. Now, because God was coming to speak in the hearing of the people, God commanded them, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. In other words, they were to clean themselves up. In verse 15, Moses commanded that the men not go near a woman. Now, that, that's kind of odd for us as modern context. But back in the old, old covenant, um, it, whenever people had sex, they were temporarily unclean. Temporarily unfit to come into the presence of God. So he tells them, stay away. I want you to take a three-day fast from your wife. You're going to all have your laundry day on the same day. For those of you that have single family units in your house and you do laundry day, you know how chaotic it is enough just doing the kids laundry and your laundry. Now imagine well over a million people doing all their laundry on the same day. That was my rock. You know that Jehoshaphat. I was trying to dry. I had my laundry there and you set it on the ground. I have to wash it again. I'm taking your bleach out of it. It was also one massive bath day. Come on, it's my turn in the spring. Get out of there. It's going to get cold. Right? Can you just imagine how chaotic and frenzy this was? Everybody washing themselves, cleaning themselves, trying to put on their best to meet with God. But for all of their consecrating themselves, for all of their washing themselves, it did nothing to bridge the gap between them and God. It did nothing to bridge the gap between them and God. Even with having washed their bodies and having their Sunday best, as we like to say it, they still were told, take care, to, take care not to go up into the mountain and touch the edge of it. No amount of purification. 
No amount of cleaning, no amount of washing would make Israel holy enough to stand in the full presence of God. When God came down, all of these spit, shiny, clean people still trembled. And in the end, were standing far off from God. Their outside cleaning did nothing to better their relationship with God. When I grew up in church, I was always told that we were supposed to dress our best on Sundays. But I rarely heard the message about praying and cleaning the inside of my heart out for Sundays. It was a matter of coming and approaching God with outward cleanness. And the message that we forgot is that no amount of outside cleanliness can help you. Because the primary problem isn't that we are outwardly filthy, but that we're inwardly unclean. Clean yourselves up, but even in your righteousness, your righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. It's not simply that our bodies, our actions, our hobbies, our TV entertainments that are impure, but instead our hearts are impure. Do what you want to clean the outside up. And it will not bring you any closer to the mountain of God. Because it is not the outside that separates us, it's the inside. The same principle was applied later to Israel's religious leaders, the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, Jesus warned, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. And then he made his warning even more damning when he said, You are whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of dead and decaying rot on the inside. Now, if it was true of the most religious people in Israel, that though their outside was clean, but their inside was full of dead bones, how much more true is it of us? We need a cleansing of the heart in order to stand in the presence of God. We don't need him just to whitewash the tomb on the outside. We need him to make the dead bones inside alive. We don't need him just to clean up our cup and our plate. We need, to give, we need him to clean us up and then fill us up with life-giving water. It's the inside. So Sinai says this. Clean yourselves up. It won't be enough. And then comes lesson number two. Come near. But not too near. In the second lesson of Sinai, you see the people are told that they can come near the mountain, but they're not allowed to go up it. They're not allowed to touch it even. Before coming down onto Sinai, God warned Moses, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Now listen to this. Whoever even touches the mountain shall be put to death. Even touches the mountain. And if I was a parent back then, I would have hogtied my kids during this time. Y'all ain't going nowhere. But not only that, whoever touches it, no one else is allowed to touch them. 
They're to be shot or stoned is what it says. Whether beast or man shall not live. No one is allowed to touch the holy mountain of God. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Not up the mountain. Up to the mountain. And then according to God's command, he sets up a boundary, right? What America is trying to do with Mexico, God did with his people around the mountain. He built a boundary line. You can't cross it. He said, you're not allowed to go beyond it. You touch the mountain and you'll die. And then he comes down on the third day and you just hear, you see his smoke and fire and you hear his booming voice. And Moses comes up and God says a second time, go down and warn the people, lest the people break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Now, this is a very strange image of our God, our loving, great God for many of us who see him like a very cuddly rabbit up up there to be approached at any time. He's saying, if my people break through to see me, they will die. Tell him again. He says it three times. If they come up to see me, they will die. Even the priests are told that despite their holiness, despite their being the best of the best, if they come up the mountain, he'll break out against them. Now, what's the point of this lesson? I think it's twofold. First, Sinai shows us that people come to God on his terms, not on their own. You don't waltz into God's presence. You don't break down a window to get into God's presence. You don't smash through a wall. You come in the way that God wants you to. They and us, by implication, should not come to God presumptuously. He is a holy king after all. So I think that's the first point. But the second point is simply this. We're begged to ask the question, why is there a divide between God and his people? Why do we need boundaries between us and the mountain of God? Why does God have to give three warnings to tell them that if they come up to see God, they will surely die? My friends, this doesn't change later in the old in the Old Testament. God gives them the tabernacle. But there's still a wall between them and the holy place and then a veil between them and the holy of holies. The tabernacle, if anything, shows that God is with them. God is near them, but they cannot go into God. Anyone that happens into the holy place is to be stoned or shot just like they were on that mountain. Later in Isaiah, when the temple's built, an Israelite king happens into the holy place and he's struck with leprosy. So why is there a divide between God and his people? The answer is a matter of holiness. Because of the existence of sin, people simply cannot enjoy the full presence of God like we see it in the Garden of Eden. We're separated from God. That means something. It's not just a theoretical truth. It is an actual truth. We are separated from God. A thick line between him and us. God even had to come down in a thick cloud. Why not just come down, God? Why do you have to wrap yourself in a thick, dark cloud? Because according to what God said to Moses, no man shall see my face and live. It's a glaring problem. Does anybody else see that? That we can't even touch the mountain that God's 
feet stand upon should show us just how wicked and sinful and separated that we are from God. Sinai teaches us that people are unable to come boldly into the presence of God. We come near, and even when we come near, we come in trembling and, and scrambling in fear. By the end, of the, tw- the end of chapter 20, God's people don't get closer to the mountain. They get further away. Even to the point where they're begging, Moses, go speak to him for us. We can't handle it in and of ourselves. Lesson number three. Lesson number three about Sinai, this is what it tells us. Here are the things you should do, but these are also the things you cannot do on your own. These are the things you should do, but these are the things you are unable to do on your own. In our day, there is widespread confusion concerning the Ten Commandments. We treat them like a a political agenda. Like these are the things that people must be expected to do. We put them on courthouse lawns. Why? Because that's what we expect people to keep. The reality is, when the law is given, it's not expected that they could keep it. It's actually expected that they'd break it. The Ten Commandments prescribe, that is, they tell us what we should do. But they also describe what we can't do on our own. We're going to see how this is true from this text. In verse 1, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So everything that follows falls under this claim. This is Israel's God. They must obey his commands, not their own desires and agenda. He has every right to tell them how to live. He has every right to demand holiness from them because of who he is. The first four commandments deal with uh, one's relationship with God. Commandments 1 and 2 are related, as you guys know. And they require Israel to be devoted to God alone. Both commands, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image, demands that Israel worship no one else. God says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So don't worship anyone else. Commandment number three deals with reverence to God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I find it humorous that we tend to think this only has to do with using God's name and cursing, right? When we we cuss and we use God's name, that is like a whole new level of evil. But the word for for, uh, you shall not use the take the Lord's name in vain can actually be translated as carry. So it kind of renders it like this. You shall not carry the Lord's name in vain. In other words, Israel, if your life doesn't carry the honor of God with it, you don't deserve to be associated with it. It's not just what we say. It's what we do. It's how we live. If their lifestyles are not one that can carry the honor of God, then they are not to be associated with God. That's the idea. That's the weightiness of that command. There's lots of us who have never said the no-no words, but yet have still broken this third commandment because we live in ways that do not carry the honor of God. Fourth commandment says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remembering the Sabbath is the way in which God's people enjoy their relationship with him. God rested with his people in Genesis, and now he offers that same rest here in Exodus. It's a time when they are allowed just to remember. It's a sign for them 
that they have a special, unique relationship with God. To neglect the Sabbath, as we find out later in the Old Testament, is similar to neglecting God himself. In the same way that if one of my children refused to come to the dinner table, it's not just a rejection of dinner. It's a rejection of the family itself. So to keep the Sabbath is an invitation to enjoy a relationship with God. The final six commandments focus on relationships with other people. These laws emphasize the value of human life and the respect of another's property or another's relationship. In a, six, in a sense, these six laws recognize God's lordship over every interaction that we have with other people. He has given us authorities like parents to lead us, so we must honor them. He alone decides who lives and who dies, and so we must not murder. He created marriage and made it sacred. Adultery then is to be forbidden. He provides for what we need, and therefore we must not steal. He values truth, therefore he commands that we do not bear false witness. Don't lie. He deserves our thanks for all that we have. And therefore, we must not be ungrateful by coveting our neighbor's spouse, servants, or property. Now, these Ten Commandments were things that Israel should do but could not do on their own. It's proven in verse 20 when Moses tells the people. They're, just to paint the picture, they're shaking. They're trembling. They've just heard this incredibly weighty law. And here's what Moses says. God has come to test you. That's an important phrase. God has come to test you that you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, we've seen that word test before. God has come to test you. Where else have we seen it? We saw in Exodus 16, 4, when God gave Israelites bread from heaven to test them. Why? To see whether they would obey his laws or not. To see whether they would obey him or not. So here's a simple question for us. If God's testing them, what is he testing them? So let's ask this question. If God himself came down from heaven, if God himself revealed his laws, his commands, his righteousness in his own booming voice, if God himself came down in fire and smoke and earthquakes, would people obey the law of God? The answer is no. The test reveals they won't. Just zoom out a little bit. See Exodus 32. They are the people who heard God's word from his own mouth. And in Exodus 32, they break every single one of them. Exodus 19 and 20 doesn't boast us up to see what we can do. Exodus 19 and 20 breaks us down to see what we're unable to do. Even if we had the word of God itself left to ourselves, we cannot obey God. My friends, your own experience should tell you this. We've had the Ten Commandments our whole lives, and yet how many of them do we break, and are we still breaking today? We are unable, in and of ourselves, in our own power, to obey God. This whole thing, this whole chapter, proves that even if God came in booming fire, people are so sinful, so in slavery to their own rebellion, that they cannot obey God. They're helpless in this. 
What's more, the law is to be taken as a single whole. If you break one aspect of the law, you've broken it all. Here's what James says in chapter 2. Forever, whoever keeps the whole law, if you keep nine out of ten of them, but fail in one point, you've become guilty of it all. Paul takes it even further in Galatians 3. Not just are you guilty of it all, you're cursed. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. He felt the enormous weight of it. And then after considering that one fact that if you break even one aspect of the law that you're cursed, here's what he says. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by law. He's reading the same Exodus 19 and 20 that you and I are. He's reading the same Old Testament that you and I are. And he reads it and he doesn't see all these things that we can do. He sees the things that are proving over and over that we can't be justified before God by works. Well, I've never murdered anyone. Jesus takes it to a whole new level if you've even hated them. And you've broken the law. Well, I've never slept around on my wife. Well, if you've even looked at a woman with lustful intention, Jesus says you've broken the law. Over and over again, the law proves that we are sinful people. So based on what both James and Paul says, the law was never meant, the Ten Commandments were never meant to be a means of attaining righteousness before God. Put them up wherever you want. They can do absolutely nothing for those who read them to make them righteous before God. The only thing it will do is convict them of sin. But you're still good. It's still good. The only thing it can do is teach them that God is holy and that we are sinful. Now, I think, to be sure, did God expect his people to obey these things? Absolutely. But he knew their sinful hearts way better than we do. There becomes a point in time that by the time of Joshua, Joshua tells them to obey the law and keep the covenant. And they say, yes, absolutely, we'll do it. And Joshua, having learned from Exodus 19 and 20, he basically says, you can't. Because God is holy and he's served by holy people and you're not it. My friends, I hope we hear that consistently. It's not just elementary school truth. The law cannot make people righteous, but rather the law is meant to show people why they're unrighteous. In this light, the law is good because it prepares people for faith in Christ. For faith in someone else whose righteousness actually counts before God. Now, considering these three lessons, Sinai teaches us that it's hopeless to have a relationship with God on our own righteousness. You know what it takes for you in and of yourselves to have a relationship with God? Perfection. Absolute perfection. If you yourself, on your own terms, in your own way, in your own right, want to have a relationship with God, you must...